We could start with that. <laughs> lemon face. Er. No, I did tiger face and you lemon face. Tiger face first. Well, welcome to the first ever Creative Ets podcast. And I spaced for, what do you call that? When you space it for an emotion? Dramatic effect. Dramatic effect. Yes. That's why I did it. Absolutely. I'm here with my co-host, Hannah LaFerry. Hey, hey. And then uh, the guy who will probably not talk very much, Brett Gillen. <laughs> We'll see. He's the peanut gallery. So if we miss anything, he's going to come at us like a spider monkey. Um, So this first episode is going to be about my kind of like my life, my the starting of creative. Every time we talk about creative, the first question I always get is, well, how'd you come up with that idea? And the story behind it is is kind of crazy, I guess. What would you say, Brett? What do you what do you think when you think about this story? It's uh, it's a crazy story. It is for sure. I, I, mean, I never find the word. I always try to say it in the right way. It's it's. I mean, interesting. I guess interesting is even better than crazy. Um, I mean, there's crazy things that happened in my life that led me to this, and there's a lot of things people are just like, how did that happen? How did that timing happen? That's why I think it's crazy. But I think at the end of the day, it's it's more interesting than anything. Um, but I wanted to start off this first episode by going into some of the programs and then going into the stories after, because this will kind of give everyone who's listening for the first time a basis of what Creative Ets does. And then it'll lead, I feel like it'll lead into more interest going into it. So Creative Ets, right now, we started in 2013. And so we have these main programs. There are art programs. There are songwriting programs where we will fly veterans from anywhere in the country to either Nashville, to Chicago, We've offered the program in Virginia and L.A. as well at the University of Southern California and at Virginia Commonwealth University. The art programs are three-week, fully accredited art programs to help veterans tell their story for the first time. So they go as normal students. They're taught by other veterans how to tell their story through art. The songwriting portion is we'll bring them to Nashville, Tennessee. They'll write with number one or pro songwriters about their story, um, and then they'll have a song at the end of it. And we'll get into more details about all those probably in so many more podcasts to come, so I don't want to keep on going over that stuff over and over for listeners, but anybody who has questions, too, can always reach out. But we'll definitely, most likely, cover that all. Um, we ha- also have just recently opened up some new space in Nashville, and we have a space in Chicago. So if anybody's interested in those communities, you can come around and do arts and music programs. But ultimately, at the end of the day, our mission is to empower wounded veterans to heal through the arts and music, no matter what that is. Which leads us to our podcast, because uh, I think this will be a great way to reach veterans, to teach them about our programs, to educate them on the arts and why we could do them. Um do you have any questions yet? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. You know, I know we've been doing some virtual programs. COVID's kind of uh, thrown a little bit of a wrench in how we can reach veterans. Um, and I know something that you're super pumped about is just getting the story into veterans' homes, getting creative vets into veterans' homes. So how, what does that look like during COVID and, and how does that lead to a podcast? Yeah, there's so a lot of the, there's so many numbers thrown out there and there's, uh, they say 22 suicides, they say 20 suicides, they say 17. The latest statistics say that there's roughly 20 suicides a day in the veteran space, but that includes military, so active duty and reservists. Um, there's, they say, so 17 roughly are veterans, but they say out of those 20, 14 don't actually seek help or they had it in the last two years. They haven't been to the VA. They're not looking for programs. So when we first started these programs, we said, well, how do we how do we reach those veterans in their homes? And I think especially right now, especially with COVID, 
podcast is huge just like online like twitch video games music everything just reaching in their homes to let them know that we do exist so i don't want to every time i say it, i'm like i'm not trying to sound creepy we're not trying to just get into their homes we're trying to legitimately get in there and pull them out so that they could hopefully uh find ways of healing like i did in my personal story yeah so for those who are just discovering creative it's for the first time um how did we get here? Who are you? Yeah, my name is Richard Casper. <laughs> I, I was born on a dark night. No, um, yeah, let's jump into my story because that's the one thing that everyone leans in on. And so, anytime you guys have questions or want to stop me, you can because I'll just keep going on and going on. But it really starts uh, high school. I was a junior when 9/11 happened. Uh, previous to that, I I knew I wanted to go to the, uh, the military. I didn't I didn't know what branch yet. Um, I had, I, I had to lean in towards the Marine Corps just because my dad's one of 11 and, uh, all of his brothers has served and nobody has served in the Marine Corps. So for one, I just thought, oh, it'd be cool to be in the only branch that they didn't serve in. Uh, but after 9-11 happened, I just, I was angry. Just like anybody, I was confused. I was angry. I didn't know what was going on. I already had this sense of service inside of me. How old were you at 9-11? 17, I think. I'm bad with math. I'm pretty sure. 17. (laughs) (laughs) Junior. I had to even think about that. Sometimes I said I was a sophomore, but then I looked back at the dates and I was like, oh wait, I entered high school in 99 and I had to do that quick math. That's not my best suit. I did math for Marines. It's an MCI. We'll talk about that later. Um, (laughs) Didn't really help because I cheated. Uh, <laughs> uh, but so in, I was again confused, angry, upset. I didn't know, and nobody knew at that point who attacked us. Obviously, but I was already writing. Uh, I was writing papers on the, Saddam Hussein and how evil he was, and all this stuff. So instantly, the first thought I had was, "It's Saddam," and I was super mad. And I said, "Why can't I be the one that goes and captures this guy?" And I was just thinking. And optimism has been a big part of my life in general. And I just said, I didn't think I, I was going to be the guy, but I said, why can't I be the guy? I could be the one that captures Saddam to get rid of him. I already know he's he's done all this evil stuff to his own people. Now he's attacked us. Like, this is my just in-the-moment thought process. So I said, I told my mom, I was like, I'm going to join the Marine Corps. I'm going to go infantry, all this stuff. And she was like, no, we don't want you to go because obviously war was starting to happen uh, or they're about to push in. And I said, well, and I had to negotiate myself because I was 17, so she had to sign the papers, her and my dad. And I said, well, listen, I'm going to join whether you like it or not. So would you like me to have a year of training before I go? Because they have a little program in the Marine Corps that when you sign up in high school, you still go meet every month or so. Um, And so I talked her into it. I was like, I'm signing no matter what. Do you want a month of training first? She said, yeah, that sounds smarter. So (laughs) she signed me up at 17. And so it wasn't about two weeks after I graduated high school that I flew off to boot camp for the first time. I went to San Diego. I went to uh, MCRD down there. And while I was there, something kind of crazy happened. So I join. I'm infantry. I think I'm going to be the first one over. So I just I get in there. And it's probably within the first week where they come out and they they read my name off this list of people. And you don't you don't want to be on lists while you're in boot camp. Like that's just that's the last thing you want to be. But they also said that we're special testers. So I was super confused by that. And then it hit me. I was like, oh crap. In high school, I blew off every test I had to do, like standardized testing, like the state and and all the stuff, SATs, all that, because I knew I was going to the Marine Corps and I thought I was gonna be a lifelong Marine. And I was like, oh, maybe they think I'm dumb. <laughs> like, I'm a special test. Like, I came in and they're just like, 
this guy needs to go somewhere else because he's very special. And I was like, no. Special tester. But what, and that was again, that was my first. So these are like my first thought reactions with 9 11, with this. It's just instantly I think these things. I'm like, oh crap. And then we start going to these rooms with other people, doctors, psychiatrists, all this stuff. We started with probably, you know, roughly 300 to 400 Marines in each one of these groups when they go in there. I noticed that every time we came back, so it would be like another week or another three weeks or another two weeks, whatever it was, there'd be less and less Marines in there to the point to where we must have been two, two and a half months into boot camp, which is only three months in the Marine Corps. And it was like 20 of us. And I was, we still didn't, had no idea what we were doing there. And that's the time where we were right. We knew that we were about to do one on one interviews with like a gunny. By that time, us being such like, you know, E1s, we were so like, Okay, this is so scary. This is the scariest thing we've ever done. We have to go talk to a gunnery sergeant. Um, and so right before that, though, to make it even more intense, they said, just so you all know, you guys are interviewing for a position uh, either at Camp David or White House Communications because you all have been selected for the Yankee White program, which means that you can, you're legitimately doing security for president of the United States. I was blown away. But I was also very confused because in my mind, I had one trajectory. I was like, Iraq, Iraq, this is where I'm going. And now all of a sudden it's like, here's your new trajectory. And I didn't know how I felt inside about that. It was like my brain and my heart were kind of like beating each other up. How'd they choose you for that? What was that process? The only, I think the only legitimate requirement was to be infantry. I have no idea how else I landed on that list uh, besides I was infantry. So they took, I think like 10 to 12. Oh wait, no, I do know. They also said you had to have at least a 105 GT score on your ASVAP, which was actually means that I was smarter than I thought I was because I took an ASVAP and yeah, you had GT is one of the things inside of the ASVAP score that you, you, or that you receive. And I think it's, really around math and science. Um, and it was like 105 or up was what they selected and infantry. So those are like the two small requirements I didn't know till afterwards that I got selected for. <laughs> Good question, though, because I always forget <laughs> to mention that. I always forget that happened because I'm like, hey, I must have been kind of smart. I didn't <laughs> cheat on that test. Um, so, yeah. then I, I'm, So, again, I'm, I'm kind of confused in my life, like where I'm going. I'm like, for one thing, my mom's going to be super pumped that I'm going here. For one, it's very prestigious. It's a president. Like, who wouldn't want to guard a president and have that? And two, it's like my, all my buddies are going to go to war, and I'm going to have to, like, sit here and think about that. And so I said, you know what? Let's just toss it up and see what happens because I'll just go wherever they put me. And while I was in, uh, in the School of Infantry, which is the next step since I signed up for infantry, even though we got selected for Yankee White, they still send you to the School of Infantry, and then you go off to do your next, they call it like uh, secondary, B-billet, whatever it was. I was kind of doing that early on in my career, going to Yankee White tra- trajectory. So I did the School of Infantry um, while I was working up there. What was happening during that time? Oh, Madonia. My buddy Madonia got this notice, and he said, hey, they put us on the list to go to um, a, a infantry unit like we're not going to camp david or white house like we're or dc we're going to an infantry unit i was like i think he was kind of blown away by me but just being like okay like i'm that kind of sucks but wherever wherever they put us we're going and i know he went back and and talked to the the, the shop and they ended up correcting by the end of it i didn't know for the first month where i was going so i was kind of prepared mentally to go to war 
And then uh, we ended up by the end of it, we did get you know sidetracked back to the right place because I think they were just you know trying to get everyone off everywhere because it was the height of it. It was 2003 and like roughly October, November, right around that first push in Fallujah. So they were just looking for bodies. Um, so from there, I ended up going to the next step was uh, Chesapeake, Virginia for security force school. Uh, I had to do two months there, did a little workup uh, to get the pretty much like glorified police officer. So you learn takedown moves, you learn like how to use a pistol, shotgun, all that fun stuff. Once you're done with that, you go to Washington, D.C. And so while you're at Washington, D.C., you're guarding the Commandant of the Marine Corps and the CNO of the Navy, and you're uh, at the oldest post in the Corps, and it's very much of a showy kind of situation. It's where all the Marine Corps marchers are, all the like the videos that you see of the guys in white pants throwing the guns around. Which did don't... you get to do that? No, 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 and I didn't want to. <laughs> and they don't, they don't even fire. Um, and so, well, the funny thing about that location too, because it was like you're the poster, you know, child of the Marine Corps up there. You had a few different things. You had the marchers, so it's like your own cliques. So like Mean Girls kind of thing, like where you have your different. Yeah, this was like the marchers were the Mean Girls. Um, then you had the body bearers who are the ones that legitimately they they work out for a living because they hold the caskets for Mm -hmm. presidents and heads of state and all these different people um, for the funerals. They're the ones that walk out with them. So they are just working out all the time. And then there's security and that's us. And we're kind of like the misfits. We're just like (laughs) running around doing whatever. Um, So we just guard the the base. And And the only reason we're really there besides obviously security is we're waiting for our clearance to go through because Yankee White, it sounds kind of fake. Like when, when we first got selected, like you're a Yankee White uh, Category 2 security clearance. I'm like, that's something that you made up in the movies. <laughs> but really, if you look it up, even though I think Wikipedia has it on there, the president has Yankee White Category 1, and then there's Yankee White Category 2, and then Yankee White Category 3, and then Top Secret. So there's three above Top Secret. So we actually had Yankee White Category 2. Wow. So they had to go into some intense research. Like they sent, I didn't know this, but FBI was going to my hometown of Washburn, Illinois, which has 1,100 people in it. And they were, and it wasn't like you would think. They didn't go ask, you know, my mom about me. They didn't go ask my best friends about me. They would go to like, my high school friend's older sister or to my neighbor that we've legitimately never talked to. And they'd only ask them these questions. And so my family growing up, I have three siblings all older who've been to prison, jail, all this stuff. And we come from a poor family. So I honestly didn't think I was going to pass. Some Mm -hmm. people stay up there for the whole time. They they go to D.C. waiting for their clearance to pop. It never does. So they're Mm -hmm. just stuck there for their whole four years. They could try to leave, but most of them just stay there and then get out. I thought that was going to be me because I thought, well, you know, uh, part of the clearance process, if if you don't have a lot of money, then they think someone can influence you with money. And so that's why they do all the psychological tests, too, to make sure even if you don't, you, you won't be influenced. So but in my head, I'm still like, I don't know if my clearance will ever go through. Luckily, after 11 months, it went through. But just to get back to kind of a funny story up there, uh, the marchers who have guns that don't actually fire, who just throw them around, do all this stuff, they're dressed blues. They get these um, this fabric. What is what is last like uh, elastic? Right? Is that what yeah. it is? Like a, yeah, like elastic sewed into the armpits of their dress blues because the F dress blues are very like tight and they're you can't really lift up your arms too much so that they could throw their guns around, right? Yeah. Well you would think as security, we would be out there with our dress blues, with a bulletproof vest under the dress blues, with our guns on our hip. And our guns sit really high on our hip to the point where we can't actually reach them when we pull our arm up. And so instead of, you know, 
putting this $50 elastic in our armpits, they, they teach us how to rip our sleeves to go for our gun. What? Wow. <laughs> what do you think about that? <laughs> I don't know. Seems like a lot of show, huh? Yeah. And so we're sitting out there sweating bullets, and then we're like, if anything happens, I have to rip my sleeve just to be able to get my gun. Wow. It's like so counterintuitive why these marchers are out here throwing their guns around. Yeah, I've held that with me for. I mean, that's. I'm still bitter about that. I'm glad I, you got to get that out today. Yeah, I, I don't. It makes me angry. Anyways, from there, as my story continues, I did. My clearance did go through. It was 11 months. I was in D.C. Um, and you get a pick. You get well. You. It's kind of like everything in the Marine Corps. You usually give your top choices. So they said, would you rather go to Camp David or White House Communications? And with White House Communications, it was more, it was cooler if you stayed there longer because you could end up flying around with the president in like just suits and stuff, which sounds really awesome. But I knew, I was like, well, I'd have to probably be there for a really long time before I had seniority to do that. And then Mm -hmm. if I'm not, I'm just guarding a base. Mm -hmm. Camp David, since I was more of a country boy, I was like, that's just up in the mountains. It's going to be awesome. I had a Harley at the time. I was like, I could just ride around the mountains. Uh, I just felt like, and I heard that you get to interact and be around the president more. So I thought that would kind of be cool. So I chose Camp David, and they sent me there. So for 11 months, go to Camp David. Uh, I ended up staying there for about 14 months uh, before they gave me the option to stay up there because they needed a few bodies or leave. And at this point in my, my career, I'm like, I'm not going to be a lifer. I'm not going to stay in the Marine Corps my entire life. Uh, so I am going to get out of it for four years, but I cannot get out without going overseas. Mm-hmm. It was the reason I joined. Uh, that's That was the one thing that I still was like, okay, I'm going to go no matter what. And the first sergeant just just briefly said, hey, if you want to extend for a few months up here, you can. But I knew that was going to just continuously put me up there. And I said, you know, I don't remember exactly what I said, but probably something like, all due respect, like that's awesome. But I, I want to just go to the next unit deploying. So did your, sorry to interrupt, but no, did your, interrupt all you want. Did your experience up to that point not going to war and kind of just sitting and waiting, did that influence your not wanting to be in the Marine Corps for, for life? That might have been. It was, it probably was because it was like, I just wasn't doing what I wanted to do. Yeah. And my buddies were going off and dying. Like mm-hmm. the, when I was still in SOI, the youngest kid there, his name was Cherry, because I'm Casper. So we, we were right next to each other like bunkmates because it was alphabetical. Mm-hmm. Alpha, alphabetical. Youngest guy in the in boot camp at the time or in SOI, and he was one of the first killed in Iraq. And then my friend Longoria, who was – it was so funny. He's – He's he had like a waiver to get in the Marine Corps, I think, because he was like five two, five one as a as a dude, little Hispanic dude. I loved him so much. There was a time we became really good friends. We're sitting next to each other in SOI, uh, the school of infantry, and one of the instructors. He's instructing all of us, and they're like, "When you're in war, when you have bullets coming down the range, how do you think you're going to react?" He's like, "Actually, in fact." Who's the tallest guy in here? And so I stand up because, you know, you can't see me, but I'm like Richard, six, six, five. Yeah, six, five. <laughs> that's without shoes. So six, six with some boots on. Um, and then they're like, who's the shortest guy? And he legitimately was sitting right next to me along where he was. And so he stands up and he obviously he comes up to like, you know, my hip pretty much. And he's like, now you, pointing to me, said, how tall are you going to be when shots come down range? And I just pointed straight down at Longoria. I was like, this? Everyone sort of roughed and laughing. I mean, he was awesome, but he, again, he was on the first wave over there, and he ended up dying. Like, he was kicking in a door, got shot up. And so part of me, I think, subconsciously, 
was wanting to get out because I felt so bad that they were serving the real war, and I was sitting back here with a cush job, you know, guarding the president. I also think that's why I really wanted to go to war, and I could, it wouldn't stop me. Like I was like, I'm going because when I when they sent me to they sent me to two seven and twenty nine Palms, and while I was there, I was doing a workup to go to Iraq with them, and they were like, Hey, by the way, Casper, you get out in uh, June of two thousand seven, and we don't even get back, or no, we don't even deploy till January 2007, so you won't be able to go to Iraq with us. You're going to have to stay back. And I was like, well, this is some crap. Uh, send me to the next unit deploying. And just at the same time, they were looking for bodies for the first tow unit because they had a boot drop of a bunch of uh, Marines and they had no senior people to cover that. And so they started pulling from 2-7, luckily, because I said, well, put me on there. And so me and one of my buddies, Jeremy, who's who was with me at Camp David and DC, was in the same boat I was. He wanted to serve. And so me and him ended up tagging along and going over the first toes. So does that mean you extended your military contract? Nope, not at first. So that was just saying, hey, if you move over to first toes, you can probably go with them before, before you get out. But when I got there, Funny question because they said, by the way, we get back July and you get out in June, you can't go with us. And I'm like, what the crap? Like, what does a guy got to do to get to Iraq around here? Like, there's so many people not wanting to go and I'm pushing forward to go. So I said, can I just like extend? And they're like, yeah. I was like, oh, well, if I would have known that, I would have stayed with 2 7 and just extended, but I was able to extend for one month. That's all I did. I was like, what's the minimum month? That's all you need? Perfect. I extended one month. And so I ended up going to Iraq with First Toes. So it was a, a really quick workup. But while I was there at First Toes, I got to meet this awesome young dude named Luke Yepsen. He was one of my my boots at the time, so just new Marine. Um, he was awesome. We used to I used to make fun of him on the cat. Like he, he was just he was in. He was, wasn't was like most of the guys were 18, 19, but he was already 20 because he went to college first and then went in. So we already clicked a little bit more because we're more in the same age bracket, even though he was under me. So we used to talk crap all the time. And because he was under me, he'd be like, I just got this tattoo, which people can't see. But it's at the time, it was just angel wings and a cross. And there was a sash, but there was no name in it. I still remember walking by him on the catwalk after I got it, and he's like, Cobra Casper, what's that tattoo? And I showed him, and he's like, why is the sash open? And I was like, well, maybe, I was like, I don't, I mean, I, I was like, I designed it this way to probably honor someone who dies, uh, maybe a family member or something. And he's like, would you put me on your arm? I was like, no, you're a boot. Like, <laughs> why would I put you on my arm? And we laughed, and I walked away, and uh, ends up when I went to Iraq, uh, when, when I was first there, we went uh, to Fallujah, Iraq, with the whole tow platoon. We traveled as a platoon, too, which is weird. Most people go, their full company or their full regiment goes over. We were an attachment unit, so we just went 60 guys. We flew over there with another unit, and then we came back with a different unit. All weird, but um, so we were a pretty tight-knit, close group. And we get over there, and I was in truck four. And so what we were doing was mounted infantry. So I went from mainly thinking I was going to do patrol infantry, just be on the ground, kicking in doors kind of stuff, to be mounted infantry, where you still can do the kicking in doors stuff, but you're most likely driving around, like looking for IDs, uh, going through uh, complexes, going, there's parts where we went out and looked for downed pilots through like the boondocks of Iraq, like searching houses that way, um, those types of things. And so when we get there, I was in the... Well, I was in the third truck. So we roll in groups of four. So four Humvees, we go out and that's like our our squad. Mm -hmm. And so we'll go out for eight hour missions and come back. And I was in the third truck for a while as a dismount. And in those Humvees, we have the driver and then the vehicle commander and then the gunner and then a dismount. So at first, even though I was an E4 corporal, 
typically you'd have a leadership role, but it was, it was still my first time in Iraq, so they put me as a dismount, and my job was to, if we stopped at anything, I was the first one out. So there's like a hierarchy. It's mm-hmm. obviously if the gunner sees something, he's engaging, then the dismount would get out and engage, and then the driver would even get out and disengage, then the, the vehicle commander, because you want to obviously protect the mm-hmm. leader at all costs, because they're the decision makers. And um, But after... It didn't take very long. Uh, well, I got there and what year? What month did I get in there? May, May or something. And it wasn't until or no? Did we leave May? Now I'm getting confused on dates. Anyways, I do know that the first time I was blown up, my Humvee was blown up, was in November, and it, I tore cartilage in my chest because the overpressure from the cabin, like from the blast, went down my throat and pulled open my chest. And were so you inside or were you outside? I was inside, yeah. and so it kind of comes in to the the only hole i guess mm-hmm. and also obviously the shockwave goes through you and so tore cartilage because i was just my chest was killing uh, around that same time the lead vehicle commander in my squad this is his third time overseas and he is having panic attacks he's he's like chewing through his leather gloves like that's how bad it gets so they want to move him to dismount and so they moved me to vehicle commander of the first truck and so mm-hmm. i just happened to have luke epson was my gunner at the time and i was super pumped about because um, he was like the one of the boots that I clicked with the most. Mm-hmm. And so we would do our thing. I only had him for a little bit, and it wasn't um, until December. It was just super quick right after that. December, he ended up being shot and killed right next to me because um, he was my gunner. I was a VC, and we were we stopped on this possible IED. Uh, and in Iraq, it could be anything. Sometimes there are donkeys in the middle of the road or on the side of the road. And if you see them, you you stop, you get EOD to come in and check it, see if there's a bomb in there. Uh, well, it's one day we're driving up and there's just this, I, and I can't remember, but I remember me and uh, my buddy Lewis having a conversation on if it was a muffler or if it was a propane tank. And I remember coming up to it and I was very dead set on one of them. I How far away were you? From it. So when we first, it was almost, it was probably like 50 meters ish. Cause by the time we got to it and we can identify it as not just like a, a random debris, like it was sitting straight up with a wire poking out of it. So it would have to be the dumbest uh, insurgent ever to be like, someone's going to fall for this bomb. And so we knew it was most likely fake. So we knew that it was probably like to see what we did. That was the usually they would do that. They would do a dry run of something just to see how you'd react. So they put this thing in the middle of the road. I stop. I'm like, hey, you know, uh, uh, we were outlaw. That was our our name. So I was outlaw one. So outlaw two was the VC and the truck two. Um, and I was like, hey, outlaw two, there's something. In, I think there's a fake ID in the road um, right up ahead. It's a blank. Whether it was. Uh, muffler or whatever he's like okay and we went and we coordinated it off which means that we we had to shut down it's a three-lane highway going each way so six lanes total and most people don't think that like that fallujah has that kind of infrastructure mm-hmm. but it's just like a highway you'd be driving up and down here and so i go block off the oncoming traffic and then he goes blocks off the um, outbound traffic on so we're parallel with each other then we have two vehicles facing the other way so that nobody can come in and we're kind of controlling the blast radius while we wait for eod and so our whole job is to make sure that these cars that are um, that we've already stopped from trying to go along their daily route, we make sure they just don't go anywhere. They can't come closer because it's actually a threat to them. And so Luke, being a good gunner, is he anytime they creep up, he's supposed to wave the orange flag as like a caution, like, hey, if you start coming at us, we're gonna have to shoot. So don't come at us. 
Um, there is like an order of operations, which is I'm, I hope they change now, but uh, it's ridiculous how and probably correct me. Someone will correct me, but uh, when cars are approaching you, there's like a seven step process to where first you wave the flag and then if they don't stop, you have to pop a flare. So now like think about how long this whole process would right. take. They're driving at you. Wave flag, they're still driving. You pop a flare, they're still driving. You shoot in the air, they're still driving. You're supposed to shoot in the ground by them. They're still driving. You're supposed to shoot into, I think, the engine block. If they're still driving, I think you shoot at the windshield next, and then you can engage them. Like the process that you'd have to go through, you'd already be dead by the time they get here. Right. Uh, but Luke just kept on. He never even had a pop flare. He just kept on uh, waving the orange flag. They'd creep up a little bit, wave the orange flag. I get How, how far away are you from the traffic? Now, like, like say when they start pulling up, oh, is yeah. it like 20 yards? Is yeah, that... when it first starts, I mean, they're good. They're probably good almost 100 meters out because we could barely see them, but they keep on getting a little bit closer and a little bit closer mm-hmm. and a little bit closer. So it keeps kind of Luke up in the gun a little bit. And my visual is I could just see his feet next to me because where the, the hole is. So when he's sitting on his little like cloth seat in the Humvee, his feet are really close, like up here past me, my vision. And then when he's standing up, I could see that his feet are back here. Uh, and so we have eyes on, I think in my head, I'm like, this is just, they're seeing how we react. I didn't, I didn't think sniper. I didn't think anything else. I didn't think Daisy Chan. I was like, this is a fake one. I've never seen this since we've been here. So this is most likely seen how our squad reacts to this. So, I mean, I get out and I go pee on the truck, like, cause obviously there's no bathrooms there, but for some reason they always say, make yourself a hard target no matter what you do. So even though I'm like peeing and I start just going back you can't see this at home but i'm back forth back forth kind of like a pendulum uh, yeah keeping my body moving because i'm like if there is someone looking at me it's gonna be a lot harder to shoot me and they're gonna look for an easy target and i still have on video me getting in my truck and i'm looking at myself because i used to make all stupid videos i brought a camcorder with me <laughs> and i'm like i'm just uh, gonna get back in my truck in uh, case of snipers just trying to be funny and like hard at the same time and i shut my door and then Luke gets back down, and I'm like, hey, Luke. And I think that reminded me when I said that, just trying to be funny. I was like, oh, yeah, there could be a sniper around. Luke, get down in the truck. And I see his feet get down. I was like, get down just in case, you know, snipers. And uh, he gets all the way down, and then I see him, like, scooting back up. And I'm like, Luke. I was like, you want to end up on my arm, don't you? And he's like, it'd be an honor to be on your arm, Corporal Casper. And it wasn't 10 minutes later that he was shot by a sniper and killed. Um, and he fell down into the truck, and I still remember I was kind of in shock because it just sounds like a like a rip of. Uh, it's the only way for the military out there listening. It's just like at a rifle range when you're like pulling up and down the targets from the people shooting. Mm-hmm. When that bullet hits the paper, like it's that kind of sound that mm-hmm. just just hit, and he fell into the truck. And I and Gilroy started working on him, trying to figure out which way he was shot. We were trying to get to the corpsman. It was just a mess, and I was just like. Obviously, uh, my life changed forever in that moment. Uh, How long did it take for you to be able to tell that story? Uh, a long time. I mean, I used to, especially not crying, because uh, mm-hmm. there was one of the people we used to. So I knew I knew that Luke's family was a Catholic, like Christian Catholic family, pretty devout. And he used to talk about that a little bit. And I used to actually listen in the truck. We weren't supposed to listen to music, but I listened to music. I had like a Zune. People don't remember Zunes. There was like you know how Never they had like a little it. MP3 player. Yeah, so they had like the they had iPad or uh, iPods at the time, but they had like Microsoft Zunes, and this one had like a big screen on it and everything, so you could play videos and music. 
And so I used to have this thing, and I had I mainly listened to country or Christian music at the time, and rock and old school, like Beatles and all that stuff. And there's this artist named Mark uh, Mark Schultz, and he's a Christian artist, and he had this song called Running to Catch Myself. It's like a five-minute song about uh, pretty much a nine-to-five job that is so funny. It has nothing to do with, like, Christian. It's just he's a Christian artist, and he, and he sings this song, and it's just funny. It's a funny song. And Luke would always be like, hey, play, play Mark Schultz, play that song, and so... Um, the one good thing, I think that I was placed in that Humvee for a reason because I was, he, he even told me, he's like my family, cause I, I didn't even let him cuss. Like I was that tight. I was like, you don't cuss, you don't smoke, you don't do anything in here. Uh, and they, he was cool with it. He's like, he was pretty much saying that I helped him make a little better, him a better person before, like he thought he was going to go home, which he went home, but he was thinking like, Hey, thanks for that. And that's ultimately why when I look back and I try to think of positives and negative situations, I think maybe I was the one to do that because he was the only one that died out of our whole platoon said maybe i was meant to be in that truck so that i can deliver this message now on what creative is doing but it was a worst experience in my life that turned out to be one of the best things for other veterans if that makes sense because i don't want to make light of his death i don't want to say it's a good thing but it's been good for other people that he lived and so that's that's the message i try to get out there so how long then after Luke's death were you in Iraq and got to come home and, and what was that like? So I had for December is when he was shot and killed and then in January I was blown up two more times mm. and then uh with brain uh with uh what is it called? Concussions. Mm-hmm. And then February thirteenth, I think it was, I got blown up one more time and they said, Hey, you are unfit for duty. You cannot work anymore. Um, your brain is too damaged to do anything else. They, I thought they were going to send me to blood, get a CAT scan. I was like, I don't even got a cat. Um, and, <laughs> and, uh, I was like, you can't have pets over here. Um, and so, but then they didn't, when I came back inside the wire, they, they didn't send me out again, but actually there's a crazy story behind that too. Um, don't know how much I get into, but the last day they wanted us to take over this new road that road that hasn't been patrolled in, I think it was a week or two. And that's like no go. You have one unit patrolling a road, and then they leave for two weeks, and then they're like, "Hey, new unit, just go patrol this road before this other unit gets in town." And you're like, "This is a death trap." Like they've had yeah. two weeks to just rig this thing up, knowing that we're going to come back to it. But still, they sent us. By this time, remember I was third truck, and then I was first truck. Well, after having two concussions, three times blown up, two concussions. I knew that if I got a third concussion, I'd be out. I'd be unfit for duty, and so did the command. So they said, we're moving you to the fourth truck. Never, It's never been hit like in our time because they're always going after the, the first mm-hmm. or third, most likely. And the first day I'm out on patrol and the fourth truck was on this new road, and the moment that the kind of dawn breaks – boom right under us just it goes off and it's cloudy it's this is a way smaller road so what they did was they burnt down the the, what they'll burn down the road like heat it up because it's more tar than anything heat it up they'll place an ied and then heat it back up and melt it back down so you actually don't even know it's there uh it's unlike the other ones that we got hit by which were buried off to the right where there's some some sort of notice that something's been disturbed um you didn't know when it was on the road like that 
And so we get hit, and usually protocol, if we can, uh, even though the Humvees were beasts, so even though the front two tires were blown out, we could still like lug along to up to the next person. That's typically what we did because we're afraid of snipers. So we would we would roll up to the next vehicle if we could, and then they would assess our damage from there, and then we'd get out and fix it if we needed to, bring the other trucks around to to provide coverage. And for some reason at this time. Our third truck with the with the actual um, platoon commander in it turned around and started coming to us. And I was like, well, he's coming to us, so we'll just wait here because we just pushed up a little bit. And now we watch him get blown – like his truck is blown up. And we're, we're like, oh, my God, that would have been us because that was typical protocol. We'd roll up to them. And so they were able to still pull up because we had a lot of front-inch damage, but our trucks were still moving. And so I'm looking in the little rear view mirror and seeing the whole road was gone behind us. And I look in front of us and the whole road's behind us. And I'm just thinking, oh, we're about to be killed. Like, we're about to be blown up for the third time. Like, it was going to just mm-hmm. take us out. And luckily, that never happened. Uh, we got reassessed and we we had other trucks pull up next to us. And, and we uh, put the new tires on and we went back to the base. And they said, well, we went back to a Ford operating base. And they said, or what we call FOB, and I got checked out by medical there. And they said, hey, you, yeah, that was your third concussion for sure. You're unfit for duty. You can't go out on patrols anymore. So I'm like, okay, uh, well, that sucks. Like, what am I going to do for the next three or four months while I'm in Iraq? And we get a call while we're just uh, PMing the trucks and trying to get them back up and make sure they're good to go back to Camp Fallujah. And we get a call and they say, hey, uh, Sorensen's truck was hit and they had the medevac people. You guys have to go back out there. So me, I'm thinking like, I was supposed to die out there and I didn't. I was like, this is God sending me back to to finish me off. Like that, people say, like when they talk about not being scared in war, like I legit, for the first four months, even after him dying and me being blown, I wasn't scared. And that's not being hard. It's more being just, I was comfortable with the idea that I was going to die. And I kind of, I kind of was like a little more lackadaisical than you probably should have been. We have kind of a God complex when we go there. And so I didn't actually really, feel the fear and i think mainly we weren't in a lot of gunfights it was mainly just like people shooting at us that we never saw or being blown up by people that we never saw so there's never really that interaction and so but that moment from that second i never felt that much scaredness and anxiety and just i my brain was going crazy and because i legitimately thought i was about to go back out and die i was like this is my time and so, but I have a cool face. Like nobody in my truck knows that. I'm just sitting there, just like in my head, playing these things out. And we roll back out there, and it's horrible. The scene's horrible. They've already medevaced the guy out who um, just destroyed his whole body, like broken every single bone on his left side of his body. And he was medevaced out. And his truck rolled into some civilians in their car, and they were all beat up. And our, our corpsman, uh, or actually it was one of our infantry guys, had them already wrapped up and bandaged. And we were just waiting for the second medevac for them to come in. And I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, I want to go help these people too, but what if I get killed? But then I'm like, hey, maybe this is my time to go. So I get on my truck and I still go and help them and I start working with them. And I'm still in the back of my head just thinking like, I'm going to get shot any second now or I'm going to be blown up any second now. Does that kind of fear or that kind of, okay, this is my time, empower you or embolden you to take action that you normally wouldn't? No, I mean, it's weird because I was so... I was like, I still did things, even though I thought I would just sit in my truck thinking Mm -hmm. like, I'm supposed to die. I'm just going to sit in my truck. But then ultimately I I thought, 
well, this is going to happen mm-hmm. whether or not. And I don't want to just be sitting in my truck while this happens. Mm-hmm. And so I was like half in the battle and half in my head. And so I went out there and I was working with them. And then Medivac came and I started walking with them to get them medevaced. And I was like, well, there's enough people here. I'm going to walk back. And then while I'm walking back, I'm like, I'm going to get shot. 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 I sit down in my truck. I'm like, can't move and not get a shot. Maybe I'll get hit on the way back. And so we're driving all the way into to Camp Fallujah, another half hour. And the whole way, I'm probably looking cool as a cucumber. But I, since I know what it's like to be blown up, I was feeling that replaying in my, my skin was like doing the crawling thing. And I kept feeling my body being blown up again and again and again until we finally got into Camp Fallujah. And I had I didn't have that feeling again until uh, I started college, which is like down the road. But it was this anticipation anxiety of just mm-hmm. constantly being injured again. And it was the scariest thing in my life. Um, but it was so weird that it just abruptly stopped. Like I got once I was back at camp, I was OK. Now I'm I'm cool. I'm at I'm at Camp Fallujah again. Yeah. If I have to stay here, I'm just helping Phil Sandbags is the COG of the Camp Grizzly, and uh, I didn't have to do much. All all I had to worry about was mortars coming into the base, which it's a pretty big base, so it didn't happen often. In fact, though, it did, which is kind of crazy, at Luke's memorial service, because we have a memorial service there, uh, a, a mortar came in and hit the church that we were in during the memorial service, which wow. is kind of crazy. So take us back to that day when Luke died. You know, in America, one of your relatives dies— gets murdered, whatever happens, you get, you know, a couple of days off work, you know, you've got the wake and the funeral to process what just happened. What is it like overseas when that happens? Oh yeah. That's something that nobody ever talks about. And it's something that you don't think about. Well, actually two things you don't think about. Even me as a Marine going over there, you have this, you have this like subconscious, I'm going to have weekends off. <laughs> like you're not, you don't actually say it. You don't actually think it. But the moment you work for like three weeks straight, like Monday through Monday through Monday through Monday, you're like, oh, there's like legitimately no breaks. It's like every single day. The second thing is when Luke was killed, I just had to take the dismount and put him in the gun. And I was mm-hmm. down one less person. Mm-hmm. And we didn't get any time to digest it. We, we, He was medevaced and we drove back to the base. And then that's when the gunny came out and said, I just want you all to know that you know he ended up dying. And I just broke down right there. And but that was the only other time I broke down too, because at that moment he was like, you know, get your crap together and you're going back out there tomorrow. Just like act like nothing happened. So yeah. we can't treat the civilians there differently. We can't react. We we just say, hey, you know, now you're more. Now you're up in the gun, or or yep. Gilroy. Now you're up in the gun, and let's just go. You just watch your friend die too, and but you're going to be in the gun where he was killed. And so and you're you did, legit in the same Humvee, same Humvee, same. So, everything. so your dismount just move seats. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's crazy that I think there's a lot of these little things that people don't talk about that I think really dive into people's brains when they come home that they don't even realize. But I mean, Gilroy and Moore are probably the same thing is just knowing that they're in that same exact truck, like reliving it every single day. And for Gilroy, the same exact seat being like, I'm the replacement. And like now I'm sitting in the seat. Now, for one, he's probably more afraid that he's going to die, but he's also, you know, about his buddy who dies. Yeah. It's, no time to process. Nope, not at all, which is a good thing when you're over there, but it's a bad thing when you, when come, you come home. home. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. You just go numb? Kinda. Yeah. I mean, it's you don't even have time to go numb, really, because you, you go straight back into the fight to where the next day, now I'm still worried about my guys, and I'm like, okay, well, let's go back out there and just keep doing our mission. And so you just keep going through it and through it and through it. So I think people react differently. Some people may become numb to it. Some people maybe get angry to it. I think I was kind of just like, 
oh, let's just block this out and let's just continue doing the job and then just keep ourselves preoccupied. So we just consistently, like I had a regiment of when I was on patrol, I would, I would, because we didn't have, that was actually the first time I got on Facebook was Iraq because I didn't know what it was and it was for colleges before that. And then my, my grandma was even getting on it just to talk to me. So I was like, oh, I'll get this. So I would go on patrol for eight to 16 hours, depending on what kind of day it was. And then I would go to the chow hall and I'd eat a bunch. And then I would go to the little rec center, get on the computer and just message those few people. And then I'd go right to the gym and I'd work out. And then I'd go back to eat for like late rats, and then I would go on patrol again. And I just did that every single day, not any leisure time. So I, I kind of built into the regiment not to think about that stuff. So that's what kept me going. I think that's what keeps a lot of people going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah, it seems like that routine and not processing what happened to Luke kind of saved your life over there when you're over there. But then when you come back home, that's, that's when, uh, you know— the the PTSD and everything like really manifests itself, and you, if you don't deal with it, that's kind of what Creative Vets seeks to to help. With. Yeah, and I tell people all the time they teach you how to not be vulnerable when you go overseas, which is good because it does save our lives. There was a time where uh, we were driving, and we usually drive at well, some of the patrols we drove at night, so pitch black. We we're wearing MVGs, night vision goggles while we're driving down the road and we have IR lights that are on the front. So if you're just a civilian out in the f- field at night, all you would you wouldn't see anything. You just hear like vroom 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 like four cars drive by. Um, and so the visual limitation isn't very far, maybe only like 35 feet in front of your vehicle and you're going like 35 45 miles an hour and there's this little blurb on the middle of the road I see coming up. And I was just like, left. I just yelled left. And my driver, Gilroy, because they switch off every once in a while, him and more, just like swings left, swings back right. And this is when Luke was still alive. And he was like, what was that? I was like, dude, there's an ID right in the middle of the road. Oh, so I call God. him like, outlaw two, uh, stop, blah, blah, all this stuff. And there was a bomb on the, on the middle of the road that had pressure, little pressure plate beads on it. Typically, they would either put them on top of it so that if you drove over it, it would blow up, or they'd string them out on the side of the road. So no matter which way you go, you would hit them, and they call them pressure plates because or speed bumps because they look like little speed bumps. They mm-hmm. have stuff like C4 inside of them. Um, but that that training and that unvulnerability and that just like everything. When I said left, he just went left. He yeah. didn't know. He didn't see it. He didn't. He just reacted to my yeah. control. No time to think about. These it. are the things that why like hazing is bad but it's when you're in the military and this is training for us people might call it hazing but it's training for us because it's what is going to keep us alive in war the problem that the military's had and i think they've gotten a lot better since 2007 is the moment that you get out or from war there's no like here's here's your vulnerability back right. here's how to stop doing all the stuff that you've been doing just reacting to things there was none of that. Mm-hmm. So when, yeah, when I get into the other part of the story with creative, that's the big push was one day we will be in the military. So we'll have arts, music programming inside the military. So when a veteran's learning how to do a job and resume, they're also learning how to tell their story and use art to heal and use it to empower themselves. Because art's one of the one things that you could do by yourself anywhere you want and you could just showcase it to the world. You can walk away and you could tell your story through music or through art and you don't even have to be there, which is kind of the empowering portion of it. And you can hide so much in it that you can just, you can, you know, have a song that says one thing, but it has a totally another meaning to you. So if I could teach those people in the military and me transitioning, 
how to do that, we'll be a lot more successful military and we'll have a lot a uh, lot less veterans committing suicide. All right. We hope you enjoyed that portion of Richard's story. Stay tuned for part two.